Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 13 of the podcast, History Does You. Today, we'll be talking about grand strategy, and we had an interesting interview with Pulitzer Prize winner, Dr. John Gaddis. And as always, feel free to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts to keep up with upcoming episodes, or follow us on social media at History Does You on Facebook or on Instagram. And today we'll be talking about grand strategy, which is an interesting term, and it's a little bit of a different episode today because we're going to be covering a lot of different historical figures. And this is mostly based off of Dr. Uh, Geddes' book on grand strategy. Uh, He teaches a seminar at Yale, uh, which revolves around leadership and this idea of implementing successful strategy. And in his book, he basically simplifies it to around 10 essays with 10 different leaders throughout different times. And he goes back all the way to uh, Octavian and Pericles um, with the Romans and the Athenians, uh, respectively, all the way to Lincoln and uh, Roosevelt in modern times, which is super interesting because we get to see different trends in both ancient medieval history and modern history. And that is there are certain qualities that allow leaders to succeed, whether that's on the battlefield or in uh, political maneuvering. And there are certain traits that lead to failures on the battlefield or in political maneuverings. Um, And this combination of both successful leadership and failures in leadership is super interesting because for the most part, every single leader that Dr. Gaddis mentions and what we talk about has a certain levels of success. But he also mentions that certain levels of success leads to hubris and hubris leads to creating or pushing your objectives beyond what your capabilities are. And that's really the fundamental core of what Dr. Geddes is going to talk about. And that is finding this balance between the capabilities that a leader or a state has and the objectives of that. And what usually leads to failures, especially on the battlefield, is a military or a state not understanding or not creating the capabilities that are necessary in order to achieve the goal. And this is just super interesting because, again, he draws on a lot of different examples throughout history. And again, this is why uh, I would highly recommend this for any, you know, just young leader or someone interested in history because he really is able to kind of thread the needle in terms of being able to talk about a lot of different examples and a lot of different fundamentals that, you know, are important in leadership and what leads to both success and failure. So I hope you really enjoyed this interview. I know I really enjoyed it. Um, and I really encourage you to read his book on grand strategy or any of his work in general. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his biography on George Keenan, who developed the strategy of containment, which was pretty much the fundamental core of U.S. foreign policy throughout the Cold War. So um, again, enjoyed the interview and uh, talk to you after. So. On today's podcast, we're lucky to welcome on Dr. John Gaddis, who is professor of history at Yale University. His previous books include The United States and the Origins of the Cold War, Strategies of Containment, The Long Peace, The Cold War, New History, and New York Times bestseller on Grand Strategy, and is a winner of the 2012 Pulitzer Prize in Biography for his book on George F. Keenan. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Riley. Good to be here. Uh, and just to start off with some broader questions, uh, my first one is, what is your favorite party of history, favorite part of history to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite, and why have you focused so much on the Cold War and grand strategy? Well, the Cold War is where I got started, uh, because that was what I was um, studying in graduate school, and that's what the dissertation and the first book were about. And that was back in the 1960s and the 1970s when we were still smack in the middle of the Cold War. So it was a pretty timely topic uh, at that point. But over the years, um, I got interested in other um, things. I had not you know, stayed with the Cold War, for sure. So grand uh, strategy from uh, teaching for a couple of years uh, at the Naval War College in, in Newport, uh, and that led to the strategies of containment. Um, then that led to George Kennan, who read that book and liked it, and we fairly quickly decided that uh, I would become his biographer. And so one thing led to another, and um, sometimes they circled back. So 
um, we actually have a pretty active grant strategy program here at Yale and, and have had for about 20 years, which is really an import from, uh, from Newport. So there's been a whole series of things, and if you look at this last book, this latest book, the one on grand strategy, it actually says uh, almost nothing about the Cold War. And it starts with um, Herodotus and Thucydides and comes up through uh, World War II, moving pretty fast, uh, but hardly mentions the Cold War. And I think maybe that was partly by design. I think what I wanted to do is to see if I could write a book and say nothing about the Cold War. Or very little, <laughs> and uh, that was fun to do as well. So I range. I guess I'm free ranging in that sense. Awesome. And what are some of the challenges that you have encountered while researching in the field of history? Well, the main challenge for Cold War historians for many years was that um, the sources were all one-sided. We had American sources. Uh, we um, had some British sources, but for at least half my career, we had nothing from the Soviet Union or from China or from Eastern Europe uh, as long as the Cold War was going on. So it was definitely a matter of writing uh, one-sided history. And then suddenly with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the controls were lifted and we were flooded with new information. But uh, not very many of us had equipped ourselves in the proper languages. You know, I certainly uh, had very little Russian, no Chinese, certainly no Hungarian, uh, and so on. So that was um, a major problem to try to incorporate uh, those uh, sources. We finally um, persuaded the MacArthur Foundation to fund a big Cold War history project um, at, the, at the Wilson Center in Washington which translates uh, this stuff and makes it available. And uh, that's still going strong. So it's a really very good resource for my students now who want to work on the Cold War. And do you have a favorite leader or historical figure that you like to read or research about? No, I don't think so. I think the, the, the strategy book uh, pretty well picked up the ones that I've been most interested in uh, over the years. And that's partly also a reflection of uh, teaching um, the subject of grand strategy in Yale uh, seminars. So you read Thucydides on the Peloponnesian War, you can't help but get interested in Pericles, for example. Or if you read about the history of Rome, you can't help but get interested in, uh, at least for me, uh, Octavian, who became Augustus. I found him much more interesting than Julius Caesar. Um, and then um, it just uh, fell forward, uh, every one of the chapters in that book, as some kind of a biographical focus uh, on some particular individual who I had thought had, in one way or another, for good or bad, made a contribution to the study of um, grand, uh, to a contribution to grand strategy, had a kind of grand strategic consciousness or failed to have a grand strategic consciousness. So I've tended to see grand strategy through the actions of uh, major leaders, that's for sure. And to kind of get into this idea of grand strategy, what is grand strategy as opposed to a simple strategy? Oh, grand strategy is uh, the um, balancing of unlimited aspirations with limited capabilities. And everybody has to do this because capabilities never match uh, aspirations. That's just the nature of the world. So it doesn't matter whether you're in China or whether you're in Ethiopia or whether you're in Minnesota, you know, in many ways. We all have to deal with that dilemma. So that's what I would call a uh, grand strategy. Um, other kinds of strategy? Well, I don't know. Uh, in New Haven, it's a big deal just to try to decide uh, when we can go out uh, which pizza, pizza place to go to. So maybe that's pizza strategy or petite strategy or whatnot, but it doesn't rise to the level of grand strategy. Um, however, yeah, I tell my students they have grand strategies. Grand strategies about um, um, where, where they wanted to apply to school, about getting through school, 
of what they're going to do afterwards, about who they're going to fall in love with, all of that. These are grand to them, and so I think it's very much a relative uh, term. And how do states see that uh, grand strategy? Sorry, say again. Uh, how do states succeed at this idea of grand strategy oh. or implement grand well, strategy? I, I think it's how um, I think it's the extent to which you can apply common sense in linking up aspirations and capabilities. Uh, there were uh, there were so many grand strategic failures which came from the inability to do that. Napoleon is a very good example of that. Uh, he's somebody who um, believed essentially that his uh, capabilities matched his aspirations. And so he uh, came to think that whatever it was that he hoped for, he could get. And of course, uh, before 1812, he had gotten most of what he'd hoped for. But it was a very different thing uh, when uh, he invades Russia, because in no way did he have the capabilities to dominate Russia in the same way that he had dominated Austria, for example, or Prussia, uh, for sure. And it took him a very long time and many lives of his soldiers uh, to realize that uh, he had overextended uh, himself in that regard. And um, the same kind of mistake uh, has happened quite often in history. So the Athenians in the Peloponnesian War uh, overextended themselves by deciding that their security uh, interests required them to invade Sicily of all places, you know, for sure. Uh, and uh, Philip II's uh, uh, aspirations exceeded his capabilities when he decided that he could restore Catholicism in England, and that led to, of course, the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And then, of course, the great totalitarians. Uh, uh, of the 20th century ran into the same problem, most notably uh, Hitler, but also to an extent uh, Stalin and, and Mao as well. And I think we ran into it, we the Americans ran into it to some extent in Vietnam because like the Athenians, we convinced ourselves that Vietnam was a vital security interest, but nobody could say what was vital about it. And so uh, in my opinion, we lost a lot of unnecessary lives in, in that conflict because we didn't have the common sense just to specify what it was that we were trying to do. And to kind of get into more detail, starting off with kind of the ancient world where you start off your book, how was grand strategy sort of used in the ancient world? Well, the word strategy is an ancient term. You can find it in Homer. The term grand strategy is a much more recent term. It's late 19th century, earlier 20th century. So you don't see the ancients uh, sitting around and talking about uh, uh, grand strategy in the sense that, uh, that we do. But uh, if you just look at Pericles and uh, the uh, Athenians at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, um, the Athenians were primarily a sea power not a land power. The great land power was Sparta at that time. These are both just city-states. They're not really states in the way that we would conceive of them today. But the Athenians, uh, seeing this, uh, made the quite sensible decision that they should concentrate on their uh, naval capabilities. And so they simply built a wall around Athens and its port uh, and uh, did not even try to uh, defend their own land territories because they knew that they would lose. But at the same time, they could hold out because the Spartans did not have a naval capability. And so that was a pretty common sense uh, 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 application of limited capabilities uh, uh, to aspirations. However, anytime you do this, you're going to create great dilemmas and many of the dilemmas are psychological in character. It's, it's one thing to see common sense in terms of rationality, but it's quite another thing to get people actually to behave with common sense and to discipline their emotions in terms of common sense. So when the Spartans did begin to ravage uh, the territory of the Athenians, 
and Pericles brought all the Athenians in within the walls, but they sat on the walls and watched the uh, Spartans burning their, their vineyards and destroying their houses out in the countryside. Uh, Pericles quickly became a fairly unpopular uh, person. And then, of course, one other thing that Pericles had not thought of is something that very much uh, affects us today. Because he brought all these people into Athens within the walls, plague broke out, a horrible plague, you know, that wiped out something like half the city, including Pericles. And uh, it was certainly the consequence um, about which he could have known nothing at that time of bringing all these people uh, together. So common sense is not a perfect solution in this regard. It always runs up against human emotions. It always runs up against unknowns like the plague, which could not have been known about at the time. In fact, we uh, it was pretty much an unknown for us, the coronavirus, uh, and we're still we're all now huddling in our houses as a result of that, uh, which is not where we would have expected to be about three months ago. So. Um, and this is no perfect solution, but I think by looking at historical cases of how strategies have succeeded and failed, then you can learn something uh, that helps you cope with um, future problems like that. That's the assumption, anyway. And something that I did find interesting was your analogy from the Athenian effort to take Syracuse or take Sicily and the American War in Vietnam, what similarities did those wars have, and how did you kind of draw on those two wars and having overlapping themes? The similarity is simply that after World War II, the United States decided that because we were primarily a sea and air power, we had no business getting involved in a land war uh, in Asia. And so we wrote off China to the Chinese communists, uh, we uh, 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 tried to disengage ourselves from all mainland positions, uh, and we even announced uh, publicly that we had drawn a defensive perimeter line. We drew it in the Pacific. It was not a tangible wall, but it was a line on the map saying we would confine ourselves to the defense of offshore islands like Japan and Okinawa and the Philippines and so on. Well, unfortunately, uh, Stalin and Mao read the speech, the American speech where that strategy was uh, announced, and they immediately decided to invade South Korea, which had been divided at the end of the war, which they did in June of uh, 1950. And that was such a psychological shock to everybody that the uh, very detailed, thoughtful strategy just was tossed out the window and we rushed in troops into South Korea. We got ourselves into a major land war with China that went on for uh, two and a half years, about 35,000 American lives lost uh, in this. And then uh, the isolation of China from the rest of the world for the next two decades before Nixon and Kissinger uh, went to China in the early 1970s. So that's an example, I think, of the same thing the Athenians were doing, which was a fairly precise definition of uh, vital interests and how they were different from peripheral interests intellectually. But when it came to actual practice, to actual experience, when it came to the Athenians sitting on the walls watching their houses burn or we sitting in our ships watching South Korea be invaded. The psychological impact of that was so powerful that it caused people just to disregard or forget they even had uh, a previous grand strategy. So emotion is extremely important in this, this regard. And this is one of the things that's so important about uh, Clausewitz, who gets an entire chapter in the, in the book because he was someone who uh, actually wrote about the effect of emotion on grand strategy. Emotion including fear uh, on the battlefield, but also emotion uh, including uh, the, uh, the fear of psychological setbacks, the fear of loss of credibility, things like that, all of which are very applicable both to the Athenians and uh, to us in Vietnam, it seems to me. 
And another area of focus that I found interesting was Octavian. And my question is, how do you think he was able to balance his ambition along with the capabilities that he had and not found himself in the same situation that Julius Caesar did? That's a hard question, Riley. The basic answer is that he was one smart kid, but uh, that doesn't tell you a great deal. Uh, Julius Caesar was killed when uh, Octavian, his great-nephew, was 18 years old, and Octavian has to decide uh, what he's going to do because he's been designated by Caesar as his heir. Uh, By the time he's uh, 20, he's one of three uh, leaders ruling Rome, and by the time he's 30, he's ruling the entire Roman Empire, the known world at that time. So he must have been doing something right, and uh, I have a lot of fun with my Yale students throwing this out to them, you know, because uh, he started out at the same time that they entered Yale at the age of 18, and I say to them, well, look where Octavian was by this point. Where are you, and where are you going? And they get very intimidated by this, but it's fascinating to study. And I think the only way to study it is just to uh, uh, track his history, track his maneuvering, and see what you can draw uh, from it. But it's a complicated story because it was certainly not any kind of predetermined blueprint. He was uh, fast on his feet. He was a consummate, uh, the equivalent of a consummate athlete, judging the situation as it came up, knowing how to respond, but being able to make instant uh, decisions. And that's a pretty rare skill also. So we have a couple of examples from sort of the ancient world and how strategy was implemented there. And you dedicated a couple chapters sort of towards the late medieval era. And one of the interesting things that I found was you're writing on the Spanish Armada. What effect did that have for both Spain and England who were trying to kind of vie for global supremacy? Well, you have to remember that by the time of Philip II, uh, which is the second half of the 16th century, uh, Spain actually is a global power. Spain has conquered large portions, all of South America and large portions of North America. It's captured uh, the Philippines. It's got a global fleet. It was um, Magellan sailing for the Spanish, first to circumnavigate the world. Uh, and uh, Spain is in a quite dominant uh, position on the European continent uh, as well. Spain is a superpower at this point. Uh, England is nothing, uh, or at least very little. It's not yet Great Britain because the Union has not taken place. Uh, It has gone through this wrenching period under Henry VIII in which Henry VIII kicked the Catholics out of England <clears throat> and uh, uh, Elizabeth is his daughter, uh, who succeeds at a time when the succession itself was problematic, when uh, life itself was very fragile. Henry, after all, you know, had been pretty rough on his uh, six wives, occasionally cutting off heads here and there. And uh, there was no guarantee that uh, Elizabeth was going to succeed. She's much like Octavian. I think, in her agility and her skill. But she has some qualities that Octavian uh, never had. Octavian was not in a good position to claim to be a virgin, for example, but Elizabeth made being a virgin queen an element of statecraft and talent, uh, marriages and alignments and all this. She never married, but she kept people uh, from uh, uh, those who would wish to marry her uh, off balance. Uh, So she's good in that regard. Uh, But she's also uh, uh, very good at macro-managing. That is, uh, she was perfectly comfortable delegating authority. She had a small state, and yet she did not try to micromanage it. She trusted her subordinates uh, to know what they were doing and to leave uh, decisions up to them. Remember that it's very difficult to communicate rapidly in that period. The speed of communication is the speed of a horse in that in that period. And so you can't keep your uh, eye on everything that's happened. But that's precisely what Philip in Madrid was trying to do. He was trying to keep his eye on absolutely everything, not just in Spain, not just in Europe, but in the entire Spanish empire. 
and it was a completely impossible uh, task. And uh, he sat there in Madrid and was just constantly uh, behind, constantly out of touch with what was happening. Uh, and when uh, asked about this, uh, he would say, well, it doesn't matter because God is on our side. I am restoring Catholicism in England. This is what God wants me to do, and so all will be well. Um, he trusts in God. Elizabeth did not particularly trust in God. She trusted her admirals, and that was actually a much more practical thing because in the end, in the English Channel, it came down to a matter of what direction the winds were blowing in on a particular uh, night as the much larger Spanish fleet sailed up the, um, up the channel and the winds were in the wrong direction. So something had gone wrong. Uh, Philip had failed God or God had failed Philip or maybe uh, God just was not interested in controlling the winds in the first place, which is what Machiavelli would say. Machiavelli said famously, God does not want to do everything. Some things are left up to man. And that's a very important principle in grand strategy, it seems to me. And so obviously having one example of that. Another part of the book I was interested in was sort of the founding of the United States. And right after it gained its independences, what challenges were they facing and how were they able to implement a strategy as sort of a weak power in a world of old powerful ones? Uh, they had some of the same skills, I think, that Elizabeth and Octavian had. Um, they were, of course, um, on the edge of the known world at that time. Uh, this is the uh, late 18th century. They're by no means yet a superpower. They know that they occupy a, an empty continent, a largely empty continent. That's how they saw it. Uh, but their capacity to control all that territory would take 100 or 150 years uh, to develop. So much depends on the extent to which they can do what Octavian and Elizabeth did, which is to play off the great European powers against each other. So one major example of this is um, they're dealing with the French, with uh, the French king uh, Louis, the, uh, Louis the 16th. Uh, the French had been very badly defeated by the British uh, in the Seven Years' War, which ended in 1763, and they were bitter and they were determined to get back at the British. But, of course, constitutionally, the British government is far closer to what the Americans claim they're doing. France is an absolute monarchy, and the Americans are building uh, an independent uh, republic with theoretically the people being sovereign. Uh, so the first thing they do is to form an alliance, uh, not with the British, but with Louis XVI, the authoritarian leader. And they say, we need you to um, uh, fund our revolution against the British, which Louis does with fateful consequences because it partly breaks the French treasury and leads indirectly to the French Revolution uh, itself. But that gives the Americans the... Um, the money they need, and ultimately at a critical point, it gave them the additional naval strength at Yorktown that they needed uh, to uh, defeat the British, who in turn, like uh, Napoleon and like uh, Pericles, had overstretched uh, the idea that uh, uh, a small island power could control a great continent like that from across 3,000 miles of ocean. Uh, was, when you think about it, uh, pretty impractical, especially given the fact that population of the Americans is increasing as fast as it, as it is. So the American founders knew all of this. They took it all into account. And what's fascinating about them, Riley, is their classical education. They read uh, Thucydides. They read Machiavelli. They knew these great texts. <clears throat> and, um, and they were thinking all the time about how to apply the principles from uh, the ancient world to their own immediate uh, political world. Um, if you look at uh, the Federalist Papers, you see that uh, the examples from the classical world are just coming and going furiously uh, in those. So I think they are a real example of um, the same thing you see with uh, Octavian and with uh, Elizabeth, and that's, uh, again, very clever and fast footwork. And do you think those ancient texts and the examples from that sort of time helped and influenced 
United States and their ability to kind of navigate being a republic in sort of a world of empires and kings? Yes, I do. Back in that period, I think it did. Uh, we tend to think of American foreign policy as being um, aimed at uh, promoting democracy uh, throughout the world. We tend to think of it in liberal terms. But this is all uh, 20th century stuff. This is uh, Woodrow Wilson. There was nothing particularly uh, liberal about the original founding fathers. They were pretty tough-minded realists, and they were willing to make deals with uh, whoever could uh, help them. They were willing to play the Spanish off against uh, the British, off against the French, and so on. And they were certainly willing to eject the... Um, Native Americans who got in the way of uh, expansion. Uh, they make no bones about building an empire. They talk about this constantly uh, back in that period. The term empire, which has very evil connotations for us today, it's politically quite incorrect, but it certainly was not to the original founding fathers for sure. And moving on, another character that I found interesting was Carl von Clausewitz. How pivotal of a figure is he to kind of the study of war and strategy? Well, the key to understanding Clausewitz, who was a Prussian, um, and, um, but actually served in the Russian army when Napoleon uh, invaded Russia. Napoleon had defeated Prussia. Prussia had capitulated, and Clausewitz was disgusted and uh, defected to the Russians and served in the Russian army was actually at the Battle of Borodino, the great battle in 1812 uh, that uh, uh, later would be written up in, in Tolstoy. And uh, what distinguishes Clausewitz, I think, from most other theorists of grand strategy is that he knew what battlefields were like. He'd been on them. He'd seen the blood. He'd seen the explosions, all of this. He'd seen what happened just to troops uh, uh, in battle and the, the role of terror and fear and disorganization and miscommunication and all of these things. So he builds this uh, oddly uh, into a theory. You would think that a theory would be a set of prediction or prescriptions telling you what to do in certain situations. And uh, most of the time it is, and there is uh, obviously some of that in Clausewitz. But Clausewitz also says that there come times, there are times when you have to throw theory out the window uh, altogether, and that is basically when it intersects reality, because reality is never going to play itself out in the same way that your uh, theoretical abstractions uh, have done. So it raises the question: Why study theory in the first place if it's useless on battlefields? But I think the answer to that is uh, why have coaches if the coach can't be out there whispering in your ear when you're out on the playing field? Uh, everybody who is an athlete would acknowledge the importance of training, of coaching, uh, and yet much is left to the uh, decision of the individual quarterback, uh, for example, on the football field. So uh, battlefields are the same way. Military training is important. It's important to know how to respond uh, to what's going on. Uh, but what's going on will in rarely accord with what you expected to have going on. And if you just uh, if you if you merge your uh, theory with what you expect, you're probably going to be proven wrong. Clausewitz said all of this, uh, and so he told us how we could use theory, but coexist with unpredictability at the same time which is the balancing of a contradiction if you think about it, but then if you think further about it, most grand strategy is a matter of balancing contradictions. The uh, theory as against the practical reality of what actually happens. And one of the examples you kind of use is Napoleon's invasion of Russia. Do you think this is kind of a prime example of a leader becoming both a victim of his success and outweighing his capabilities? Yes, absolutely. And um, we used to have, when uh, I was teaching at the Naval War College uh, eons ago, uh, we would ask each other, what is the absolute fundamental rule of grand strategy, which applies in all situations? And it was, don't march to Moscow. And that's based on Napoleon. And it's a pretty good precept, I think. That one holds pretty well. Uh, 
whatever time and place you're thinking about. So uh, the point is uh, more serious than that, and Clausewitz makes it. He says that all offensives, all great offensives conducted by great armies will eventually run out of steam. And that's because uh, of the amount of energy that's expended in moving a great army over a long uh, and extended landscape. Sooner or later, the troops get tired, the horses get sick, uh, winter begins to come on, and you run out of steam. So Napoleon could invade France with 600,000 men. But by the time he got to Moscow three or four months later, uh, and uh, had even captured it, the snowflakes had begun to fall. And uh, he had neglected to equip those troops with winter clothing. And he also had a lot fewer troops because of the number that had gotten sick, not so much been defeated in battle, but simply had gotten sick uh, in the course of walking all the way to Moscow. You know. So he's got a much weaker force by the time he takes Moscow. And he's only there uh, because the Russians burned the city. He doesn't have much there, and so is only there for a couple of weeks. And the whole army's morale uh, just crashes uh, completely. And uh, he has no choice but to flee to get out of there as, as fast as he possibly could. And so when he crossed back into Prussia, he had a, uh, not 600,000 troops, but only about 90,000 troops. That's how many had died uh, or got sick or, or, or whatnot along the way, which was a, a huge, huge price. So uh, this is a, a classic example, yes, of what happens. But it's not the only example by any means. Hitler did much the same thing uh, in 1941-44. Uh, uh, and uh, if you go all the way back to... Uh, uh, Herodotus and look at Xerxes, the Persian king of kings invading Greece. He does much the same thing too. So it's um, it's a pernicious, ubiquitous uh, syndrome. And another interesting thing that I found sort of around when you're writing this is why you mentioned how historians sometimes miss the turning points in history. Why do you think historians do that, and how do you think they fix that? Because the turning points don't leave archives behind. A turning point, this is where Tolstoy comes in, in his great novel, War and Peace, which I require my freshman students at Yale to read uh, the, the whole thing. You know, uh, The turning point, why did the army lose its morale uh, just overnight? Uh, after taking Moscow. Um, and we don't know the answer to that question because it was a thousand, tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, tiny micro decisions made by each soldier that this is not going well and our great leader does not, in fact, know what he's doing. Uh, and so there's no way that a historian could document all of this. Those soldiers did not leave archives behind. Even if they did, there would be too many of them for any historian to go through and uh, uh, come up with any kind of a pattern. Uh, so historians have no good explanation for this. But novelists do, and this is uh, Tolstoy's, uh, 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 this is Tolstoy's rabbit or hare. Uh, he invents one and has a couple of Cossacks chase it, um, intending to have it for lunch. And uh, they come over a hill, and there is the entire French army laid out before them without any guards. And so they rush back and tell their general the French are there, and they have no guards. And the Russians attack and succeed in defeating the French. A far smaller battle than Borodino was. This is Tarotino, which is maybe a tenth of the size of uh, Borodino, but had a much greater psychological impact because for the first time the Russians uh, beat the French, uh, and that turns everything around. So was it really a rabbit? We don't know. Uh, there could have been many rabbits. There could have been any number of other explanations for this, but what we do know is that there are limits to how far down in detail any historian can go. And this is where it's uh, really quite handy 
for a historian to use imagination. Uh, it's really quite useful sometimes to read what the great novelists have said about events like this. And this is why I uh, paired uh, Tolstoy giving him equal time with Clausewitz uh, in that chapter. Uh, it's fascinating also that Tolstoy had battlefield military experience in the Crimean War and in the Caucasus in the 1850s. So both of these guys, Clausewitz and Tolstoy, absolutely knew what they were talking about. And another character that you write about is Abraham Lincoln. And how do you think Lincoln early in his life discovered a cause worth fighting for, which was ending slavery? How do you think he was able to balance both what his capabilities were and the very ambitious goal of ending slavery in the United States? Well, he was probably the most clever person, uh, president uh, that we've had. Um, and he was also, um, with um, one or two exceptions, the least educated president that we'd had. He had uh, less than a year of formal schooling. So where does he get that uh, kind of sophistication? Where does he get that uh, wisdom? Uh, when uh, so many people who've had so much uh, more extensive educations have uh, messed up, have not had it uh, for whatever reason. <clears throat> and I think it's because Lincoln came closer to common sense than many people who have risen higher uh, than Lincoln did in educational preparation uh, are able to do. One of the things that uh, I talk about in the book is the tendency of people as they rise in authority to lose touch with uh, the earth, to lose touch with common sense. And uh, Lincoln never lost that common touch, just common sense. Does this make sense? It's not complicated. Is it? Can it work, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing he had, which is closely related to common sense, is a sense of timing. Yeah, he wanted to get rid of slavery. Absolutely he did. But he was never an abolitionist, and the abolitionists uh, made this their one and only cause. And they said, we have to get rid of slavery as quickly as possible. We have to do it now. Anybody who is not in favor of doing it now is on the other side and is pro-slavery and so on and so forth. Lincoln said, you can't do it that way. You can't do it all now. You have to build coalitions that will make it possible. You have to demonstrate uh, the inefficiency of uh, the slave economy. And in the end, you may have to use force. In fact, you may have to use uh, far greater levels of force than anyone had contemplated, and yet you have to keep going. And uh, these are all applications of uh, common sense in response to what was happening at the time. It's not, though, that Lincoln had some kind of long-term plan out there for getting rid of slavery. It's just that he had the common sense to be able to uh, react to the situations that confronted him and almost invariably make the right decision. Uh, and that's really a very rare skill indeed. And during the Civil War, do you, how do you think Lincoln was able to really balance both his kind of goal of ending slavery, but also sort of preserving the Union? Because as you mentioned, there are all these different coalitions that were fighting in the war and not everyone necessarily wanted to end slavery. Well, he managed it by not trying to be pure, Riley. Um, so, yeah, he wants to end slavery. <clears throat> but uh, he's got four slave states that stayed in the Union. So this is Missouri, Maryland, uh, Delaware, uh, and uh, one other, um, Kentucky, I think. And uh, does he then insist that they have to give up slavery? No, he does not. He, he says, uh, you can continue your institutions, but the most important thing is to keep the union uh, together. Um, and then he orchestrates things <clears throat> so that over the course of the Civil War, uh, uh, hanging on to slavery made less and less sense. So the North has a manpower problem. You know, it needs uh, more troops than it's able to recruit. It has liberated a bunch of slaves uh, who would be only too glad to fight for the North. And so Lincoln uh, allows the army to recruit them. Um, 
in an unequal position and all of these things, but they're put to work, not put to fighting, but just put to work. But once you do that, then it's hard to deny them the right to fight uh, in the war. And once you do that, it's hard to say it to the four pro-slavery states. After the war, all of these people go back and become slaves. And everybody says, oh, no, we can't do that. That's not fair. They fought on our side and so on. So Lincoln very gradually and in a very sophisticated way changed the logic of the situation so that by the uh, time that he proclaims emancipation, 1863, the preservation of slavery is itself uh, illogical and self-defeating. It was just a remarkable performance. And moving on, another president that I always enjoy reading about is Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah. How do you would you kind of describe his leadership style, and how do you think he was able to implement grand strategy in his role as president? Well, Roosevelt is very deceptive and very elusive. Uh, so he was president, as you know, longer than any other American president, four, elected four times. Uh, but uh, if you actually go to Hyde Park and work through the Roosevelt papers at the Franklin D. Roosevelt Library, uh, you'll be disappointed because you will find that unlike Lincoln, you know, he, he did not write down very much. Um, and uh, so nowhere do you really find in FDR uh, a game plan uh, for either getting out of the Depression or for winning the war. Uh, but when you look at what he did, when you look at the results, uh, he did uh, bring us out of the Depression. Perhaps he did it by getting us into the war, but surely that was the right thing to do under the circumstances, and he very skillfully uh, manages that. And most important, he manages to fight that war uh, at minimal casualties uh, for the United States. You know, we lost maybe 2% of the total number of casualties in World War II, just a tiny uh, number. We come out of the war with an economy that has doubled in size, and we come out of the war uh, a world power. Uh, we even come out of the war with an atomic bomb, uh, and uh, this is all due to Roosevelt. So somehow, even though he was not a conventional thinker, he was a very sophisticated uh, maneuverer, fast footwork, all this, he had that same ability that I think Octavian and Elizabeth and the early founders and Lincoln uh, had of uh, responding with agility to the situations that were um, developing. He had this ability to keep his eye on the main objective, but to be extremely uh, imaginative in the maneuvering that he took together. This is why, really, I'm very fond of the uh, Steven Spielberg Lincoln movie that came out uh, about uh, six years ago, because uh, Spielberg has a fake scene in that movie. It's dealing with how Lincoln got the 13th Amendment, which uh, uh, once and for all abolished slavery, through the House of Representatives. This is in 1865, just a month or two before he was uh, assassinated. And uh, it's not at all clear that the House of Representatives is going to go for this. Uh, so uh, Lincoln starts maneuvering. He starts bribing people. He starts buying votes. He starts handing out post offices around patronage, plums, appointments, all of this, building coalitions. And, and the movie describes all of this in a way that uh, the actual archives can't do it. This is another very good example of how you can use fiction to illuminate uh, important historical points. And Spielberg has a fake scene in which uh, the old abolitionist Thaddeus Stevens approaches Lincoln and says, Mr. President, how can you make so many uh, odious compromises in the pursuit of so noble a cause? And Lincoln uh, draws himself up and says that, well, when he was a young man and was a surveyor, uh, he had a compass that was extremely useful, and he kept it in his hand, and the compass told him where true north uh, was. But if all he had done was to look at the compass, he would have fallen, he would have stumbled into a swamp or fallen off a cliff or starved in the desert or something like that. 
So his point was you have to look at the long-range uh, situation, and at the same time you have to look at your immediate surroundings. And you may have to deviate from the long-term path in order to deal with the immediate situation, but it's very important to be able to get back on the path to hold the sense of direction, not to lose it. So Lincoln had that skill uh, for sure, and so did FDR. Uh, FDR was notorious for um, uh, telling his advisors uh, contradictory things. You know, he was just as bad as Donald Trump, maybe worse in this regard, in the sense that they never knew what he was going to decide. They never knew where they stood with him. He kept them off balance uh, constantly. But in doing so, he's experimenting. He's trying out ideas. This is part of his uh, agility. And he had the skill, which I'm not sure Trump does, of getting back to the point, of getting back on course, of getting back to the compass heading. And I think that's really the key point in all of this. Uh, so in this sense, there's another toleration of contradictions involved here, One, the contradiction between uh, the, the course, the single course, the compass, and uh, between uh, uh, being able to maneuver around your uh, around your surroundings, around obstacles, around impediments or something. Uh, so um, I think this gets pretty basically to what grand strategy is all about. And with FDR, do you think with the two crises that he managed, the Great Depression and World War II, do you think he managed them sort of with, in his view, a separate crisis, or did he sort of approach it as a sort of singular overall crisis that he would have to manage? No, he saw the connection between them. He's on record as early as 1933 as saying that we cannot uh, coexist in the world uh, with authoritarians like uh, Hitler um, and, that, uh, and the Japanese and that uh, we will eventually have to do something uh, about them. But he also said, not now, because in 1933, the United States was in as weak and demoralized a position as it had ever been, with unemployment 25%, the economy having tanked. So he took the view, uh, really, Roosevelt's view was America first. Uh, Trump is not the first person to make that claim. Get the economy. Uh, uh, revived before you can do anything. And that took uh, several years to do. And it took a lot of experimentation because people knew so little about economics in those days in relation to what's going on. Of course, they're not much better now at that. Um, and in the end, it was the uh, rearmament effort that revived the jobs and got the economy back on its feet. And, of course, the rearmament effort is directed toward uh, the support of the British and the French, the hope being that their strength could be built up so that the United States would not have to enter the war. But by 1940, with the fall of France, uh, Roosevelt is perfectly clear that uh, that's not going to be possible. We will have to come into the war at some point. But this is hugely controversial, and uh, Roosevelt um, understood that if he's going to enter the war, he wants to enter it in a way that will have uh, virtually unanimous uh, support. Uh, Roosevelt said, in effect, you know, I want my own Fort Sumter. And Fort Sumter was Lincoln's strategy of waiting for the Confederates to attack, not declaring war on the Confederacy, but waiting for them to fire at a federal installation, uh, in effect, declaring war on the Union, uh, which happened in April of uh, 1861. So Roosevelt's Fort Sumter is Pearl Harbor, an even more decisive one. Uh, and with that, the country was completely unified in a way that it had never been and has not been since that time. These are all awesome examples from different leaders throughout history. And just to ask some concluding questions, we often see military defeats such as the Athenians at, uh, in Sicily, the Romans at Tudorberg Forest, the Spanish Armada, and the U.S. and Vietnam. Why do you think, what do you think drives states to pursue violent confrontation when victory seems so unrealistic? Because it seems, it, it does not seem unrealistic. People's hopes uh, always are outrunning their capabilities. I don't think anybody ever got into a war 
uh, unless they were attacked, uh, without thinking that they were going to win. Uh, nobody goes to war without optimism uh, about that, and it's the illusion of victory that's out there. And the classic example is 1914, where you had five great powers in Europe going to war, all of whom thought they would win. Uh, and, of course, that could not be. Even common sense would have told you they can't all win. In fact, they're likely to kill each other off, which at least three of them did. You know. uh, so this is a psychological thing uh, that I think the study of grand strategy can help us with. It's just a way of saying be careful when you uh, begin to uh, contemplate military force because it's never going to come out in the way that you expect it to do. And victory may be a lot more elusive and distant than what you what you think. And going forward, how do you think this idea of grand strategy is going to be applied now? Well, um, nobody knows this. Uh, we, in teaching the field, uh, have hoped that... Um, well, let me put it this way: We were never as we were never unrealistic enough to think that uh, leaders at the top would pay much attention to what we were teaching here at Yale uh, and to grand strategy. Uh, although, as it turned out, uh, one of them did. This was George W. Bush, who was uh, actually reading a lot more history than anyone thought at the time. Uh, but um, so. We don't think of this as an immediate investment. We think of it as a long-term investment. We think of it in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, planting these ideas into the mind of our students who are now in their uh, late teens and early 20s uh, and who by the time they get into their uh, late 30s and early 40s, as uh, some of them have done, they will actually be running significant things. They may not be at the top, but they will certainly have influence. And we hope that uh, they will remember some of these principles. And we hear constantly from uh, students that we taught 20 years ago. Uh, this happens about every week. Uh, some student writes and says, I was managing this or dealing with that, and I kept thinking about Thucydides, or I kept thinking about Elizabeth, or I kept thinking about Clausewitz. And that's exactly what we want them to do. There's no way that we can tell them what kinds of crises they're going to confront, but we can coach them. And that's really what the program is all about. And overall, what do you think that history teaches us about grand strategy? Well, I think it has to, you have to say it's, it's a complicated lesson. There's no single lesson. Uh, but uh, going beyond the one thing that I think is universally applicable capabilities will never live up to aspirations. Uh, so there's a tragic gulf between the two and the need to bridge that gulf uh, and bridge it in a way that is strong and resilient uh, is really the central, uh, or should be the central concern. So we just had that really awesome interview with Dr. Gaddis. Again, I definitely would recommend you read any of his work. He's an awesome storyteller. And again, his book on grand strategy really is able to pull all these different examples throughout history and kind of just develop a sort of model that is needed in order to both succeed uh, in different arenas and in life. And that's why I really enjoy this. And really my takeaways are just throughout history, you know, having such a broad book is always difficult, but his ability to kind of just draw on different leaders specifically allows a super unique perspective that I think often gets overlooked. And one of the things that I always find interesting is, you know, and you mentioned is, you know, and I asked him is how do historians kind of miss the turning points in history because it's sort of unique. And his example is really interesting because it allows a fundamental change in attitude of ordinary people. I know in his example with Napoleon, it wasn't necessarily the Battle of Borodino or seeing around in Moscow that sort of leads, but it's just that, you know, that supposed story of a Cossack chasing a hare and then finding the French army and then being attacked. And that just completely destroys the morale of the French army, which is Again, a battle that gets overlooked, but the Battle of Tertino really 
kind of destroys the morale of the French army and pretty much ends Napoleon's ability to ever invade Russia. And this really draws on sort of this, again, goes to the fundamental of grand strategy, which is the capabilities versus the abilities and the goals that different states have, whether that's in foreign policy or, you know, domestic policy or during war, it's all these different things. So uh, this was, again, a bit of a different episode. Um, I don't want to talk too much just because I think Dr. Gaddish really highlighted everything. And as always, uh, thank you for the listen. I would encourage you to check out our different episodes. Last week we did a episode on the, uh, Ottoman Habsburg Wars with New York Times bestselling author Roger Crowley or any of our other previous episodes that a lot of different content. Next week, we'll be talking about the Napoleonic Wars, which was a global conflict from the in the early 19th century. And we have an interview, uh, super cool interview. It was one of our longest, but I will reveal him later. Uh, as always, feel free to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or give us feedback or email me um, about different topics you'd like to hear about or feel free to reach out on social media. I'm always looking for uh, different experts to come on or just receive feedback in general, what I can prove, what you want to see with this podcast. As always, feel free to subscribe or follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts in order to keep up, or follow us on social media at History Does You on Facebook or Instagram. And I hope you really enjoyed this episode, and that is it.